Hi, I'm Rachel Nannan Brown. Hello, I'm Dr. Richard Carrier. I'm Peter Bogosian. Hi, I'm Damian Gillis. Hi, this is Wanda Morris. I'm Dr. Daryl Ray. Hi, I'm RN Ra, and I took a left at the valley. And the party was really good. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Atheist, atheist. I'm an from the conservatory where the victim was found with the revolver, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin and I am your favorite Colonel Mustard. Joining me as usual is part of the team, which will explain who, what, when, why, and how they killed the mythical victim using clues. Or Mrs. White of with the knife. <laughs> Connie. Hello. <laughs> Mrs. White? Couldn't, I oh, is it Miss White? Ms. Ms. White. Okay, Ms. Ms. White. White. So, I'm sorry. And our, our Mrs. Peacock with the lead pipe. Sarah. Hello. Uh, Professor Plum was supposed to be here with a candlestick, Tyler, but unfortunately he couldn't make it. So, guys, welcome back. Thank you. You had a good week, I hope? Sure. Busy did. week. Busy week? Busy week. And uh, did you guys hear about some of the news? What, what was going on? First of all, I got to say, this is great because it is summertime. Right on. The sunshine's here, or hopefully it tries anyway. Flip flops. Flip-flops, flip-flops. No, flip-flops. you and your flip-flops. And, of course, on an uh, interesting note as well, the UK is actually leaving the EU, what they call a Brexit. You guys have any thoughts on that? Here it is, a cool I'm not too sure. It's going to be interesting to see what's yeah. going to happen, right? Yeah. At least financially, if it's going to affect us here in Canada. It's going to affect the stock markets. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing about all that is, we'll, we'll, we'll ask Phil Ferguson about that too. I'm sure he's got some comments mm-hmm. on that. It's almost like Canada's in the position now of looking the older brother down south that's going a bit loopy. And now we're also looking at mom across the pond that's really going oh, loopy yeah. as well. What the hell's going on? Everybody's starting to move to Canada. Let's all immigrate course, to Canada. we're Canadians, number one. <laughs> Yeah, totally. How come I can't barely get you guys here? Weenie. And uh, did you guys hear also that the uh, this is from physicastronomy.com. NASA apparently announced that we might have a second moon. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. Yeah, well, well okay, let's face it. It's, it's an asteroid, right? It's an asteroid called 2016 H03. Uh, apparently, the asteroid has an elliptical orbit between tw- uh, 38 times and 100 times the orbit of our regular moon. So it's not like a big planetary object like what we, we have right there in the sky. Uh, apparently, it's between 36 meters and 91 meters wide. And it's been circling the Earth for over 100 years now. So uh, apparently, that, uh, that makes it a candidate for actually being a moon. Hmm. So that should be very interesting. So today, we're doing a show about economics, and we'll be calling on Phil Ferguson in a few minutes. But before we do all that, let's do our typical thing with our Nancy that's not here, but we have a pre-recorded version of that. So let's go to that. Ready to go? Let's set you up. I am ready to go for this day in history, which as we know by now is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between June 20th to June 26th. June 21st uh, was World Yoga Day, National Aboriginal Day, World Humanist Day. Nice to have all those 
things all, all at once. Sometimes we get, you know, a really weird assortment, but I think yoga, Aboriginal, and humanist kind of fit together in a strange mm-hmm. way. In a strange way. Yeah. World Humanist Day is a humanist holiday created, uh, celebrated annually around the world on uh, close to June solstice, which usually falls on June the 21st. So according to the International Humanist and Ethical Union, the day is a way of spreading awareness of humanism as a philosophical life stance and means to affect change in the world. It's also seen as a time for humanists to gather socially and promote the positive values of humanism. So maybe next year we could, uh, on June 21st, we could ha- all go together and have maybe invite some of our listeners and have a, a humanist um, Sounds like day. a good idea. Yeah, no. have a humanist day picnic or dinner. Humanist day at Left of the Valley. Yeah, Sounds like a great idea. Sounds good. June 22nd is Teacher's Day in El Salvador. And in 1633, Galileo Galilei, re, uh, how do you pronounce Galileo's last name? Uh, I, I, I usually say Galileo. Myself. Oh, that's good. Uh, was forced to recant the Earth's orbit, uh, the sun, by, uh, on October, by the Pope. But on October 31st, 1992, yeah, <laughs> the Vatican admits right? he was Yeah, just, uh, they, uh, you talk about an immediate response. <laughs> Don't you ever let people think that the church is not progressive. That's they, right. <laughs> they come eventually 300 years after. So. D- that's right. And that was considered swift. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1847, the donut was created. Ooh. It's a kind of that's like a remarkable around donation. the earth and the orbits and the... At any rate, <laughs> the donut was created. Now, the whole invention is generally attributed to a guy named Captain Hanson Gregory who was a Dutch sailor, and his mother made him some donuts for a voyage. So there are a lot of variations on the story, but this is the favorite version, that Captain Gregory's ship hit a sudden storm, and he impaled this donut on one of the spokes on the steering wheel to keep his hands free. So he had the donuts, but suddenly the storm, so whammo, goes the donut. So the spoke drove a hole through the raw center of the donut, and Captain Gregory took it off the spike and said, Voila! This is wonderful. I don't have to go through the soggy middle of the donut. Nice. Yeah, so he really liked it better. And um, everybody on ship um, uh, said they liked it better. So the donut hole was born. Maybe not true, but it's a fun story. It is a fun story. It's a fun story. I'll never look at donuts the same way again. Yeah, and making Tim Hortons our favorite place to go. (laughs) Turn the port just slightly so I can grab a bite off my donut. That's right. (laughs) Right. 1847 to Tim Hortons, a natural progression. In 1978, a guy named Jim King, who was a radio announcer, began riding the Miracle Strip roller coaster for 368 hours. Hours. He didn't go straight through. He had kind of a whoopee break every now and then because it was... But he set the record um, at Guinness Book of Records in 1979 and remained the champion till 1986. 1986, two Canadians beat the record, uh, but Guinness quit listing the mark because of safety reasons. You know, going that... It's mm-hmm. a concern. Your whole brain, I would imagine, can turn to jelly yeah, after right. too many, too many of those. Fun while well, it lasted. Turns it to jelly. Go back to that donut store. <laughs> 
<laughs> Everything is relative. Thank you, Einstein. It all comes together. It all does. We can make anything come together on this show. <laughs> we just reach out far enough, it all makes sense. <laughs> June 24th is National Day in Quebec. Yes. Yes, that's Saint Jean Baptiste. Go ahead. Saint Jean Baptiste. There you go. In 1880, it was the first performance of O Canada. And it's a song that would become the national anthem of Canada. And at the Congress National des Canada Français. Yeah, Congrès National. Yeah, they're, the, you, the, I need you to. But a lot of people don't realize that the uh, O Canada was actually sung in French and was only in French for the longest time before they actually had an English version. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. When, I, when I immigrated, my um, uh, brother-in-law was saying that in order to pass all of my tests and so forth, he was sitting with a perfectly straight face. He said, well, you do realize that you're going to have to sing O Canada in French. And for a minute, I, <laughs> I believed him. And I thought, oh, I'll sing it, but they may not, they may not ever want me to do it again. Not anymore. Today, yeah, sure you have to eat down a poutine. And you're yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're the master of that. so I'm Hey, I make a good mean poutine. I you're going to have to bring some to the studio and prove it, buddy. <laughs> anyway, June 25th. Fifth is Independence Day in Mozambique, and in 1876, General George Custer led 250 men and attacked an encampment of Sioux Indians near Little Bighorn River in Montana, and that did not turn out well, unfortunately. Not like he planned at all. No. Custer and his men were attacked by 2,000 to 4,000 Indian braves, and only one scout and a single horse survived Custer's last stand on the Little Bighorn battlefield. And see what they call it his last answer, his last mistake. Last mistake, (laughs) absolutely. So news of the defeat infuriated the Americans and led out to all-out war. And within a year, unfortunately, the Sioux were a broken and defeated nation. It's a sad, sad time all all the way around. It's it's a bit of a history that we don't talk enough about. No, no, that's for sure. And uh, we need to talk about it in terms of what the Americans uh, and, and the armies did that was so wrong, mm-hmm. you know, during during that time. Maybe we could do a show on we that. We should one. totally do a show on yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, First dear listeners, pardon? On First Nations. Absolutely. And that, dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre, unrelated events and people <laughs> <laughs> that make up this day in history. Uh, thank you so much, Nancy. And we'll be right back right after this. Interested in a particular topic? You ever wonder where we find all this information? The Common Sense Canadian is a forum for critical discussion of the key issues shaping our world today. Water, energy, food security, and how we manage our resources to the public benefit while preserving our environment. So go to commonsensecanadian.ca. It's uncommonly sensible. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour, 
previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne, ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatchers such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. absolutely convinced that the main source of hatred in the world is religion and organized religion. Absolutely convinced of it. And I think it should be religion treated with ridicule. And we're back. And we're going to get Phil on the line right now. Our next guest is from Polaris Investment. His charm and wit has quickly propulsed his aptly named Phil Ferguson show to a must-listen as he talks about the subject often neglected by the left, economics. He's a snazzy dr- a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer, Phil Ferguson. Hey, Phil. Oh, hello. <laughs> Welcome to Valley. Well, now thank you for setting some unrealistic fucking expectations. <laughs> It's not that bad. Come on, you're a professional. <laughs> your your show is like, you got a wide audience and everybody loves you. So, yes, it. Uh, you, you said wide, correct? Well, yeah, I meant I meant oh, okay. you know you got a wide audience. Yeah, I wanted to make sure you didn't say a white audience. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, um, you're you're very well known in the states. You might not be as well known up here in Canada. For for those of our uh, our audience that might not know you, would you be so kind to give us, like they say, the Reader's Digest version of who Phil Ferguson is? Well, uh, of course, uh, I have the little podcast, The Phil Ferguson Show, a cleverly titled Phil Ferguson Show because I'm like a fucking naming savant. Mm-hmm. Um, matter of fact, I couldn't even come up with that name. Someone else had to. So uh, that, that gives you some insight in my creative skills. <laughs> uh, last month, I think we had 35,000 downloads, which is bigger than many, but smaller than many. So I'm still insignificant. Uh, experience inside the secular movement. Uh, my current stint is as treasurer for the board of directors for the Reason Rally. We just, of course, had our major event on the Mall, the Mall of America. No, that's in Minneapolis. The Mall uh, in Washington D.C. All right. And I've been on the board for the Secular Student Alliance in the past, Atheist Alliance International, and I've for the ten years have been a very secular activist trying to. Uh, rid the world of religion, and actively engaged in evangelical atheism. You know, it's, it's amazing to see that, because usually when, uh, when you think atheist, you think people that would kind of lean left on the political spectrum. It's not true, of course, not, it's not 100%, but I, I think a, a vast majority of people. And when you think of economic matters, you think of the right. Yet you've managed to merge both of these sides in a great way. And thank you so much for doing that. Well, well, you're very kind. I'm, I'm, I'm still confused by this. Economics are on the right, but uh, well, it's I'll, a subject I'll, that's more discussed on the right than it is on the left. I'm not saying well, that the I, subject itself. I think that it, at least in the United States, uh, Republicans or people on the right more often believed in, more often believe in trickle down economics, whereas uh, liberals are more realists. 
<laughs> I love you just said that. So, so Reaganomics is not, not such a great thing after all, is it? Well, Reaganomics is not particularly good, but, but the idea that if you keep cutting taxes for the more and more wealthy and screwing the poor by not giving them services, that eventually the wealthy people will spend the money and it will somehow slowly and gradually affect the poor people. Um, I think the last great time that we had tried that experiment in uh, you know, Europe or North America was uh, France, and we know how well that turned out 100 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, off with their head and let them eat cake. That, that's right, because it, it, it doesn't work. And, and there's this delicate balance that uh, one of my favorite books is 1984. And in 1984, the rich, which represented only a few percent, allowed almost 10% of the people to become middle class just so that the other 90% thought that they had a chance of becoming middle class themselves. And at the same time, of course, for the poor people or the proles, if I remember the word correctly, that they were called in the book, they made sure that they had plenty of opportunity to gamble, smoke, drugs, um, alcohol. I'm like, wow, that, that is modern-day America. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, of, I've often noticed that... Um the uh, the whole American dream thing in the states is still a very very powerful image, although I would say unrealistic sometimes. Oh, it, it, I don't know that it was ever particularly realistic for the average person, but uh, many many people. Uh, the example I I don't know if you guys remember Joe the plumber. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe the plumber several years ago uh, went out and supported. Uh, oh gosh, that, that John McCain, yeah, McCain from Arkansas Palin, yeah. or Arizona. And uh, he had a little plumber business, and he might have cleared 50 or 60 grand a year. But he thought that at some point in the future, in the near future, he might be making hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars of year, a year. And so he definitely didn't want the rich people to be taxed at a higher rate because he might be one of them. Yeah, what is that? Well, yeah, that, that is this vision of the American dream that if I work really hard... Uh, I can become rich, and, and there's definitely opportunity, and it's better than a lot of countries in the world, but there is a large portion of the United States population that if you grew up in the wrong area and you don't get good schooling, you don't get a good education, you don't get good opportunities, you don't have good family, it becomes really, really hard to achieve, and sometimes, and I'm a, I'm a well, I don't want to say a, a victim, I'm a, a beneficiary of this, uh, sometimes I've just stumbled over my own excessively long dick into good fortune. And <laughs> you should see the two women here in the studio with me. They just they just like stood right up. <laughs> said, said, what, 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 what? No, but uh, I'd like to see that. <laughs> Get in line. Yeah, it, it be careful what you ask for. Uh, but uh, it, it's one of those things that sometimes luck just falls in my lap and, and maybe it's because I work really hard, but I, I don't know. I think I've had a lot of opportunity that other people haven't had. I had a very stable family environment, and I had lots of opportunity to to play as a child and not have to worry about my own safety. I, my parents helped fund a college education, so I didn't go into huge debt uh, just to, to get an education. And then a few times when I was young and first married and we had our first child and things didn't go our way, we could just move right back into my parents' house for nine months, which was really, really sucky. But it's better than you know surfing on some dude's couch uh, when you've got a kid. So uh, those opportunities that, that I have family, that if something comes up, I could have borrowed money. And, and uh, now the big, gam- the big thing that we try to do is make sure my wife's family doesn't know that we have money. So, you know, things <laughs> come full circle. Uh, so do you think that, you know... Um 
one of maybe one of the uh, problems. It's it's a, I guess a social problem, but it, it translates into economics. Is this mentality that um, a lot of the older generation will say to today's kids, "Go out there and put you pull yourself up uh, by your own bootstraps, and uh, you can do this and uh, move out." Uh, while the economic situation is not as lenient as it was during their time. Well, I think there's some merit to that, but what I often find uh, people that I run into seem to be blind to the opportunities that they've had. Uh, you know, I, I talked to a friend that uh, basically uh, the Republican mantra that I, I, I can, I don't know, boil it down to, I've got mine, fuck you, is uh, why don't you just work harder? And yeah. this is a person who lived in a very, very nice Chicago neighborhood and had very wonderful parents and they paid for him to go to a, a really nice school and he got a great education then he got into a training program at a large corporation and learned how to become a manager you know what someone else was paying to train him and all this stuff and then he looks at someone who barely finished high school working in a 711 and saying well they just tried harder well yeah. how how in the fuck does someone who's just getting by go pay for 30 40 50 grand a year of college that that's not how that works it it there's barriers that that make it hard for someone to do that now can people do that? Sure. Have people done that? Sure. And one of the topics I talk about in my show, especially from an investing perspective, is that often the system is rigged and the people who make money off of your money, often companies make more money with your investments than you make with your investments, they don't benefit by you actually knowing how it works. They don't want you to be too well educated. Now that's that's interesting because Connie here actually works for Investors Group. Now she's not a consultant herself. You're Connie. You're a, an executive assistant. Yeah. Okay. So, but I I made privy to what goes on with commissions and how the consultants make money. Now I'm fascinated when you say Investments Group. I don't know what that means. Investors Group. It's oh, sorry, the Investors it's Group. Investors Group. It's the largest investing company in Canada. We've been around for ninety plus years, and we are the number one company in Canada. We outdo the banks. They're financial consultants, essentially, right? Yeah. yeah. For, for individual people? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I have to have you on my show because, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I joke you not because one of the most common questions I get from people is, uh, yeah, Phil, you talk about all this stuff from an American-centric perspective, which I do because that's where I live mm -hmm. and that's what I've known. Uh, I went over the border once at Salt St. Marie. Um, oh, you poor thing. But Yeah. Oh, oh and I did go to... Uh, uh, the Canadian version of Niagara Falls, which is kind of like the, the northern Branson. Um, but they want me to explain how things work in Canada. And I said, I, I don't know. That's not my expertise. And I get emails and phone calls all the time from people in Canada saying they want to hire me. And in case you're listening, no, you can't hire me. It's against the law. Mm -hmm. I'm not licensed in Canada. Yeah. However, if you have a portfolio with seven digits, I can change that. So, uh, you know, don't consider that a hard no, but, um, but it's going to be r really rough for me to do. But if somebody like me, for example, that, that would trust you, but would decide to invest money maybe in the American market, then I could hire somebody like you. Well, I, I'm going to make two different comments. One, you could hire me. I, I, well, you could hire me if you have... If you're a U.S. citizen and have an address in the United States. So if you don't have those things, n no, you can't. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to say is I don't want anyone to trust me. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's one of those things that people, people all the time email me and call me and they go, why should I trust you? And I go, I've, I've never asked for anyone to trust me. Matter of fact, I tell people specifically, do not trust me. 
I put out information for free on a fucking podcast. Okay, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's keep this in perspective. You, you listen to the information. If you find it beneficial and it makes your life better and makes your investments better, that's fucking awesome. If you want to, and I encourage you to, go double check. Part of why I call what I do science-based investing is I often give examples and links where you can go and double-check what I say because I don't want you to just trust me. Maybe you can kind of lean towards believing most of what I say, but that this implicit trust, uh, uh, from time to time I'll get an email and someone has heard 10 or 15 or 20 or 70 of my shows, and they'll send me an email with their name, address, social security number, and they attach all of their 401k and IRA statements. And, and my thought is, what the fuck is wrong with you? Don't, don't do that. Never do that. Never, ever, ever send that kind of stuff. I mean, they didn't even talk to me first. They didn't even double check that they had the right email address. They're just sending this stuff out. And then they say, well, I want you to look at this and give me your opinion. And I go, well, well let's just let's back down. First of all, don't ever do that again. Um, and, you know, then we can engage in a conversation. But it, it kind of creeps me out the inappropriate respect and trust that I do get just by simply having a voice on, on the internets. It kind of weirds me out a little bit, so forgive me for that, my little rant. No, that's okay, that's okay. And uh, you know, it's, it's actually sage advice. Uh, I think that uh, within our own nature, we are very trusting people. And uh, as soon as we have somebody that we feel is a bit more knowledgeable than we are, we label them maybe right away as experts and good experts, you know. So Well, I, I, I just did a, a show. And a matter of fact, you, you guys okay if I tell a little story? Of course, by all means. Um, uh, this one is titled, this story is titled, uh, I, I bought a stock. So several years ago, a, a friend of the family, she came over to our house and she's visiting and she comes up to me and she says, Hey, Phil, I wanted you to know that I followed your advice. And my first thought is oh fuck, right? <laughs> a, no, you didn't because the first piece of the advice would be to talk to me about what you want to do because, you know, I can help you some more. She informs me that she bought a stock. She put all of her money in one stock. Now, she goes on to explain, not one share. I assume there was more than one share, but she had saved up $5,000, and she put all of it in one company. And I said, well, what's the name of this company? She tells me, never heard of them, which is fine. There's lots of companies I don't know about. We go look it up on the internet, and she says, yeah, I saw a bunch of numbers like that, but I don't know what any of that means. And I said, that's, that's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with being ignorant. I'm ignorant on lots of topics. Being stupid is what I don't like. When you <laughs> acknowledge that you're ignorant and don't do anything to solve it, and she handed someone her money without even knowing what she was doing, that bothers me. And we look up this company. It's a very small company, and they're working on a, a proprietary technology to harvest the constant static electricity variance between the upper atmosphere and the surface of the Earth. What? Yes, good, good, thank you. That was the response I was looking for. And so if she was a skeptic, she would listen to that and hear that and be like, wait, 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 I need some more information. They provide a little more information. They're working on a way to take weather balloons and float them up several miles into the atmosphere, conducted to the, or connected to the ground with a conductive cable, and they're going to collect this variance in electricity, and they're going to power entire cities once they get this worked out. Wait a minute. A balloon? And it's, it's a weather balloon that actually can go up several miles. Now, I don't know if it can conduct, if it can carry several miles of a conductive cable, even if it's carbon fiber. The weight is going to eventually cable, add up. Yeah, exactly. And 
you and the very clever women that are with you may understand the only time there's really a strong static variance between the Earth's surface and the upper atmosphere. Do you know when that is? Electrical, electrical storm? Yes, thunderstorms. Yeah. So weather balloons don't do well in thunderstorms. No, they so don't. They, they get <laughs> shredded. And so when a, this balloon ruptures, breaks, shreds, explodes, whatever, it's now going to drop several miles of carbon fiber cable at terminal velocity. What could go wrong? Well, nothing unless you're under, under, underneath. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, if this cable comes down on top of you, it could literally slice you in two. And I'm thinking, this is probably one of the worst possible investment ideas I've ever heard in my life. And she spent her only $5,000 on this. And we walked through and found out that the the number of transactions that this has, it's a traded stock, publicly traded officially, publicly traded on the pink sheets in the United States. It's something that might have been sold to you by someone in the cast of Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, geez. So <laughs> I, I explained to her that her salesperson, by law, in the United States could not make a commission greater than 50%. That's right. Yeah, that's a pretty good, pretty good gig if you can get it. So I explained to her that she needs to go back to him and say, I want my money back. And she's like, well, I don't, I don't know if I could say that. I said, I'll go with you. I'll go with you and say she wants her money back, and if you can't give it back to her, get your boss over here. And then if your boss can't give her the $5,000, we're going to go to the Illinois Securities and Exchange Department and file an official complaint that you're defrauding investors. And they're going to say, well, you know, there's simply a misunderstanding here. We'll, we'll work something out, right? Because they don't want to deal with the feds. So they'll give her back her $5,000. And she says, well, Phil, I could never do that because he's a member of my church. Oh, jeez. He's a member of the church, right? <laughs> he's a member of, of her church, and he doesn't want to ruin his reputation. Huzzah! A man of quality! <laughs> so she's more concerned about her, his reputation now. She had $5,000. The reason she had $5,000 is because she had stopped paying her mortgage for her house oh, because God. it was about to be repossessed, and she knew that because her husband had just been put in jail. I shit you not for embezzling millions of dollars from his employer and over the past five years spent it all literally on hookers and blow. Oh, Jesus. And she won't, she won't divorce him because that's against God's law. So they're going to stay married even though he's in jail and r routinely slept with hookers. And I'm not, you know, it's like I, I can't make up stories this good. This is real, real stuff. And the only $5,000 she has, she gives to some guy in her church who must have known of her situation. And he takes it and doesn't give a shit about her, but she doesn't want to ruin his reputation. Wow. wow. That, that's, a, yeah, that's a story worthy of Hollywood, really. It, it, it is, and, and it's... This, because I deal with enough things and enough clients, I get things like this all the time, and a lot of them end up becoming topics for my show. It's not that I come up with these great topics. They are handed to me, and people have these bad investments. Recently, someone came to me, and they bought uh, what is called a uh, non-traded REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust Fund. And when you invest in it, there is a 7% uh, commission that you pay right up front. So she invested $100,000. Day one, it becomes $93,000. So she lost $7,000 in the commission. And then every month it pays a dividend and the dividend rate on this thing is 13%, which is phenomenal. In the United States right now, maybe you can get 1% or 2% from high-quality bonds. So the, the, getting, the, there's another shoe that's about to drop here, right? 
Well, yeah, there's even more. So every month she gets this dividend and it's reinvested. And I had to show her via the math on the statements that every time the investments are uh, reinvested, her broker makes a 35% commission. Wow. So that does she, not happen here. That, does not, that's, that yeah, doesn't happen and it, here. And it's one of those things that I've talked to people in other countries, and that's not even allowed legally, but it happens in the United States. And uh, so every time she reinvests, and then we finally figured out the paperwork one had to do to sell it, and she paid a 10% penalty to get out. And the salesperson pitched it as, this is a great way to make 13%. Well, if safe bonds pay two, if safe long-term bonds pay four, why is someone paying 13% to borrow money? That sounds like a Ponzi scheme, to be honest with you, in my opinion. Sounds like a very high risk, right? Yeah, this is high risk. This is not... Ponzi scheme territory, although I have those too, and there, some of them are legal in the United States. Um, but in this case, she paid 7% commission to the broker up front. He gets 35% of every penny that's reinvested. And if she wants to pull out early like a good Catholic, she has to pay a 10% penalty. <laughs> and so at the end of this, you know, uh, she made 4 or 5% on this money. And the problem is that when someone has to pay 13% to borrow money, that's because no one will give it to them at 10 or at 8 or at 6 or at 4. My home loan and the going rate in the United States right now is about 4%. So if every schmuck in America can borrow money at 4%, what has to be, you have to be like businessman quality Donald Trump to borrow money at 13%. <laughs> you have to have a proven track record of fucking up. And so what happens is these investments, as long as they're paying the 13%, you make 13%. But if one or two of them default... You could lose 15, 20, 30% of your portfolio overnight. You need to be careful there, Phil. Uh, this might be the next president you're talking about. Yeah, it, I might have to become a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, you have a couple of drones circling your house right now as we speak, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'll have to learn how to speak Canadian easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's only needing the poutine. It's easy. <laughs> there you go. So, so Phil, you, you, you threw a whole bunch of numbers at us, and, and you make it I sound... I do that. Yes, you make it sound very easy, but is finance really as complicated as the public generally thinks it is? No. Well, I agree with, I would agree with the no. I, I had an author on, uh, she was one of the co-authors of a book called Everything You Need to Know About Investing Fits on a 3x5 Card. Oh, I love that. And the, the nice thing, of course, the irony of it is they wrote a 200-page book about it. <laughs> but there's a lot of really, really basic things, so... Going back to some very fundamental stuff, one of the things I do is I teach people how to money. And the first part, and this can be very difficult for a lot of people. I don't know about Canada, but in the United States, it's very, very difficult. The first step is to spend less than you make. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, okay, it's not rocket science. It's not complicated. If you make $100 and you spend $105, you're going to have a hard time paying your bills and saving money. Real simple. The, the second part is investing, which can get more complicated, but basically you buy a portfolio of index funds that we have in the United States. I don't know if Cam Canada has the exact same thing, but you make a very wide and diversified investment portfolio. And then the third thing, it takes time. So when I have someone that comes to me at the age of 55 and they just finished paying for their three kids' college educations 100%, and they come to me and go, okay. We're done paying for college now. We're 55. How do we start saving for retirement? And that's when I say, well, what do you think about prayer? Because I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what... 
you know, if you want to retire at 62 and you're starting to save at 55, you've got a serious fucking problem because it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. You, you know, you're going to have to do something. Else. I mean, maybe you can save 25, 30, 40% of your money for, for 10 years and have a shot, but most people can't do that. Most people can't save 10%, and I call saving 10% uh, the suck-ass minimum. Uh, I tell most people the goal is 20%. So you should be, uh, a little tip is you should save at least 10% of your, I'm assuming, gross income? Well, you should save 10% of your gross income if you're 22 years old. You'll be okay. Oh, geez. But if you're 25, 28, 30, 35, often where a lot of people finally get serious about saving money, 10% is not going to cut it. The mathematics just will not work, at least in the United States. I don't know what the retirement system, you know, if you guys have something equivalent to Social Security that will yeah, help we, you get by. Yeah, we have the CPP and stuff like that, but it's a, it's a, it's a, pit, it's a pittance, right? But here. they also okay. get old age pension at 67. Yeah, but it's what? It's $700 a month? About $900 a month, yeah, and your ridiculous. CPP yeah. is about 700 So it's, Wow. Yeah, it's so you need to save 20%, yeah. I, I guess is the thing. And most people don't save 20%. Most people don't even save 10%. And I even had an author on my show that wrote a book, and in their book they told people to save 10%. And I said, do you really believe that that works? And I said, well, uh, we actually had 20% originally, but the, uh, the publisher made us change it to 10% because if we told people 20%, no one would actually do it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I don't know so, what to say to that. You know, I, I can't change the math. And, and so many people, uh, they another, had another study here that something like 45% of Americans, and this may be a similar kind of thing in Canada, could not pay for a sudden unexpected uh, bill of $400. They, they don't even have four or $500 laying around that, that is not accounted for each week. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a very similar situation here in Canada. I believe they say that the debt burden is like, I think it's like 160% of what people actually make for the average Canadian. It's, yeah. it's really high. Well, it's we had a, worried, a, a neighbor uh, at one point that uh, husband and wife team, they, they bought a house in a, in a nice neighborhood. It was uh, where we lived. It was a pretty nice neighborhood. And their first winter, and you guys can probably relate to this more than most of my listeners, they got their first uh, heating bill, and it was $300. And I'm thinking, and? <laughs> you know, $300 uh, for the really cold of, of winter um, in the Midwest is, is not so bad. And she says, no, you don't understand. We only have $200 in our budget. And I said, wow. What do you mean? What do you mean? You only have two hundred dollars. Just cut something else and and pay the three hundred dollars. She goes, we don't have the extra hundred bucks. And I'm thinking, why did you buy a quarter million dollar house if a hundred dollars is a problem for you? You you should have never bought. You should have bought a nice eighty thousand dollar house. You know, something very modest and and save for a while. Go back. Go back. An eighty thousand dollar house. Yeah. Well, yeah, Phil doesn't understand that we're very close to Vancouver here. The yeah. uh, the average price for a house in Vancouver is a, a million dollars. Yeah, it's, it, uh, it's one of those things I tell people, especially I have a lot of clients in, in uh, California, in the Midwest, in, in, like in Champaign, Illinois, and you can even go to a smaller town, you can get a house. But in fact, you could buy a condo, right? I was just looking at this today for some strange reason. You can get a condo in Champaign. Um, you know, it's a town of 100,000 and a huge college uh University students about an extra fifty thousand. So we actually get some activity and events and concerts and things like that. You can buy a condo with thirteen hundred square feet, uh, three bedrooms, two and a half baths, under a hundred thousand oh. dollars. Oh. 
Makes me want to move there. <laughs> oh my god! And and that's you know if if you want to really stretch your budget, you go to one of these small towns, you know, something like Kokomo, Indiana, or Bumfuck, Illinois, and uh, <laughs> you could probably buy something like that for fifty, sixty grand. Jeez, we're not living and, in the right city. <laughs> well, and that's the you know there have been cases where you know someone goes and gets a nice high tech job in Silicon Valley and gets stock options, and all of a sudden they're thirty years old and they have two million dollars, and they go to their boss and they go, "I'm quitting." And the person goes, what do you mean? They go, I got $2 million. What do I need to work for? And they're like, $2 million? That's only going to last you a couple years out here. And they go, I'm not staying here. I'm going back to the Midwest. I'm going to buy a house for cash. And uh, with $2 million, you can spin off about $100,000 a year and never, ever want for money. Matter of fact, you could probably give yourself a 3 to 5% pay raise every year in perpetuity. Nice. And, and so now you're done. Uh, of course, the big problem we would have in the United States is if you don't have a job, you don't have health insurance. So yeah, uh, that's a problem. That's a, that's a whole new can of worms we don't want to open yeah. with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> the whole healthcare debate. Ladies, Phil is there asking questions. I, I'm just shocked. I mean, working for Investors Group, things are so much different than what you've just explained in the States. I'm a little bit, uh, I really don't know what to say. Well, I, I get some questions because I, I hear a lot of terms from the, uh, from the Americans and the things that, uh, like um, a 401k, what the hell yeah. is that? We, do, we don't four, have this. I, I have no idea what that is. It's probably equivalent sure, sure. to an RSP, right? Is it register, registered retired savings plan? But based on the words you used, it sounds good. I, I mean, I don't know the details, but uh, I'll go with a tentative yes. Okay. Um, so in the United States, via the Department of Labor and Congress, they've made laws that most people's retirement savings, uh, other than Social Security, comes from their employee-sponsored plan. That's the pension plan. It's our pension plan. Oh, okay. That's yeah. what it is. So what we have is most people would have a 401k. Uh, it's set up under a law called ERISA, Employee Rights. I don't even remember what it all stands for. But So the 401k, you as the employee, you can save anywhere from 1% to 22% up to $18,000 a year. Your employer can match, match some portion, and every employer is different, but they can't put any more than $6,000 most people, if if uh, average person makes, say seventy thousand, if they put in five, they save three thousand five hundred dollars a year, and their employer kicks in another thousand. So they might save four or five thousand dollars a year, which, of course, based on my prior description, not anywhere close to enough. And, and then, so you have that four hundred one k, and when you leave that job, you can roll over the money from the four hundred one k into an IRA, an individual retirement account. Okay, that was my next question. If you could actually, if you leave your job, if you can take that with you and move it to somewhere else. Yeah, not only can you, but you sure as fuck should. Um, <laughs> and and there's a lot of reasons for that. So, for example, if someone is in an industry like uh, IT or high tech or something where they keep switching jobs and they keep getting promotions and job offers every three or four years, I'll have someone that comes to me that's 40 and they've got eight or ten old 401ks because they've never moved them. And really? so... What tends to happen is people, I, I, it's, it's hard to even imagine if I ha didn't do it myself, uh, if I didn't know people, people lose the accounts. And if you keep getting new jobs in different parts of the country, sometimes you move and you forget to tell all your past employers where you move to and they don't know where to mail your statements to and you forget that you had money here and there. I've had people lose six-figure accounts. They don't even know that they have them. Oh, my God. Oh. I, I Six-figure accounts? <laughs> Yeah. And so I when someone comes to me that has seven or eight old 401ks, 
I'll often make them match the 401ks up to all the jobs that they've had. And sometimes they go, oh, wait, there was this other job. I don't know anything. I must have. Did I have a 401k? Oh, I don't even know. And so they have to call the former employer and they go, oh, yeah, we've got money for you. Wow. And so you've got to move all these accounts one by one. And every person, every company's paperwork is unique and different. And some are easy, some are complicated. So it becomes a big process, which is part of the reason people don't do it. But uh, you've got to do it. And then it makes it even worse if one or more of your companies, and I had this happen to one of my clients, they had three former employers were no longer in business. So, so who you do you even talk money. to to get your money? Yeah, exactly. You just lose it. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. The, thankfully, the company doesn't hold it. it. It's usually held by a custodian that's an investment company like Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, somebody like that. So the money's probably safe. It may be really poorly invested, which is a whole other problem, but you've got to go track it down and you've got to find out, since your company doesn't exist, who is taking the role of the HR department, human resources, and who will have the one little magical form that you've got to fill out. And Yeah, and how would you prove that you used to work for these people if the company's gone under? These records could be gone too, right? Well, there, there might be records missing, but the custodian will have it, and it will be tied to uh, what's called in the United States the Social Security number. Oh, okay. Huh, wow. That's very interesting. Yeah, so it, it gets to be a bit of a game. Wow. Um, Phil, uh, you, you deal with all this kind of stuff, and I, I'll admit I'm completely ignorant of a lot of it. Uh, although I do know the idea of, you know... Uh, Especially when it comes to life insurance, to buy term and invest, I, I do. I, I'm Yay. aware of that. Um, do you want to quickly uh, talk about that? Uh, well, I just had a recent example of someone had a $150,000 whole life policy, and they were paying $76 a month. And just a quick Google search on the internet, I told them that they could get $500,000 for $36. So for $40 less, they could get three times the insurance. And then he pointed out that the term insurance wouldn't have a cash value. And I said, that's okay. You take the extra $40 you're paying per month and you invest it. And you will have your own cash value that's going to be worth more and will grow faster than the theoretical cash value that your life insurance has. So you would have better investment returns and three times the insurance in case you die. It's real simple math. Um, and then you get situations like uh, about four years ago, my, my dad passed away and let's just say his life insurance was $100,000. And my mom gets this paperwork, and she had already filled it out but not mailed it. So I was able to, to change it. She had selected the option. And the form was designed to encourage you as an elderly person to pick this option. They were going to give her a checking account that paid 2% interest. And my mom looks at this, and she says, well, my checking account at the local bank pays nothing. This is great. I'm going to make 2% on this $100,000 every year. When, if you want it in a checking account, that's nice. Of course, you could invest it and make 6, 7, 8, 10 maybe. Why make two? And I, I said, but mom, you're limited on when you can take the money out. She goes, well, I can write a check every month. I said, yeah, I, I see that you can write one check per month. And the maximum dollar amount you can make the check for is $500. Hmm. So the most she could take out is $6,000 per year. It would take her 18 years to get out all of her money if she never, ever, ever once forgot to write a check for $500. And when this happened, she was 76 years old. Oh, geez. She's not 
odds are she's not going to live long enough to get the money out, even if she remembered to write a check every month. Yeah. So she loses control and access of her money, and the reward is 2% interest, which you're not going to be able to access either. Wow. So what did you tell her to do? Uh, we we uh, changed. We checked the other box that said, "Give me my fucking money." <laughs> and, I like that box. Yeah, and they sent us uh, a check for a hundred thousand dollars, which we put into her investment account. And you know, we've got. Uh, usually, what I'll do for investments is you want the most growth as possible within reasonable risk. But then, when you're close to or in retirement, I create a second portion of your portfolio that I call the cushion. And that's because you can put your head on it and sleep at night. And it's unique in size for every person. But my goal is to have the cushion last you 10 years. And the reason I want it to last 10 years, at least based on the United States stock market, you have a 94% probability of the market being up over any random 10-year time period. Hmm. So, so you're... Go ahead. You know, I was about to ask. So, so, so the idea of you know, a lot of people look at the the market and they think, oh my God, it goes up and goes down, it goes up and it goes down. But over the long term, the market seems to always kind of climb. Yeah, and and it's one of those things. Now, again, I don't know about the Canadian market or as much about global markets, but for the United States, which is where all of my investors are and a good chunk of my listeners, although I do get quite a few from other English speaking countries, um, the United States in any given year. You could make 40% or you could lose 40%. That's what the historical data says. Uh, but if I may quote a famous poet, there is no try, there is only do. <laughs> yes, we but, love that poet. <laughs> thank, thank you for playing along. Uh, so when people call me and they say, I want to try the stock market, I said, no, do it, do it with somebody else. I, I can't help you with that because I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if in the next 12 months it's going to go up or down. But when you start looking at long periods of time, so I'll give you an example. If you start with $100,000 and you happen to be the most unlucky person and you invest that $100,000 in the United States stock market, 10 years later, how much money do you think you could have? What's the worst return? Give me a guess. The worst return? Yeah. Would be you have no return whatsoever. No return. I'll give you a hint. It's negative. Okay. Well, it's even worse. So your hundred thousand dollars would become into what after ten years? Into zero. That'd be no. Worse. No, you lose, you lose money. You no. would lose money, but uh, the dollar amount I'll just tell you: you would end up with eighty-seven thousand dollars. So if you invested at the worst time, ten years later, your hundred thousand could turn into eighty-seven thousand, and that's heartbreaking. There's no doubt about it. If you invest money and then 10 years later with all the ups and downs, you still have less money. Yeah. That's terrible. Now, that happened what, here 2000, 2000, 2008, 2009. People were losing money. Well, that's a, a given year. I'm talking about an entire decade okay. that you could still be down. Not a whole lot, but 13%. Now, what's the best 10 year time period in the United States? You invest $100,000. 10 years later, how much money do you think you would have? And I'll give you a hint. It's more than $150,000. Okay. Huh. So, okay, so I don't know. I have no idea here. Yeah, just guess. Okay. Um, 200000 All right. Ladies? I would have said closer to one seventy-five. All right. Sir? Um, I guess I'll guess 200000 as well. Okay. <laughs> you can't guess uh, the same thing I did. <laughs> Shut up, Two, I am. You got you to gotta, you gotta say 200001 
Yeah, exactly. Like the price of rice. Oh, I told one thousand. Yeah, the actual best ten-year return, your one hundred thousand would have turned into five hundred and ninety thousand dollars. Wow. And Jeez. so, that's what I explain to people is the power of compounding, the power of making ten percent a year. Because if you only made ten percent linearly, you would have you would go from one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand. But when you make 10% the second year, it's not on 100,000, it's on 111. And, and it, it accelerates and it grows exponentially. So now the good skeptic will say, Phil, I can't count on making $590,000. And I would say, you're right. It happened one time in the last 46 years. Yeah. And anyone who wants to look uh, can look at Wikipedia S&P 500. You can see these same numbers. You also can't count on losing 13%. That happened one time in the last 46 years. The probability of those two occurrences is the same. So humans are very, very bad at associating risk. In the United States, people were flipping out a couple years ago because three uh, people caught Ebola and died. <laughs> yeah, but yet right. every year in the United States, 300,000 people die from the flu and most people don't give a shit. Uh -huh. So it, it's this weird thing. You're terrified that you might lose 10% but you forget that your money could double, triple, quadruple, quintuple. So people associate. I've had people tell me that the stock market is too risky as they hop in their car to go off to the casino. Oh. <laughs> That's good. So people, people can't associate risk properly. Uh, the average year of investing in the U.S. stock market provides a return of 110%. The average pull of a, uh, a slot machine is 92%. That's, that's why I can't gamble. Matter of fact, uh, I've been to Vegas eight times, and my wife and I only gambled once. Uh, we went in, and I, I kid you not, in five minutes, we lost 300 pennies. Okay. <laughs> and that was a decade ago. I'm still not over it. And, and the thing is that we each, my wife and I, agreed to spend one U.S. dollar, and she got addicted and put a fucking second dollar in. <gasps> So yeah, I'm still bitter about that, uh, you know, the gambling addiction there. But it, it, it's amazing people accept gambling and they accept the losses. And, and you've probably heard, I don't know if you have gambling in your area, but oh yeah, <laughs> someone will come to me and go, yeah, I, I, I won $5,000. And I go, okay, how many times have you gone to a casino in the last year? 12. How many times have you won? Well, just that once. How much did you lose the other times? Not that much, maybe $1,000 a time. Okay, so you lost $12,000. And you made $5,000. You're down $7,000. Well, you're just trying to ruin everything. <laughs> yes, I am. That's my fucking job. I ruin everything. Uh, another fun thing we have in the United States is uh, long-term health care insurance. You guys have that? Long-term health care insurance. Well, we, we have universal health care insurance. Oh, yeah. Fuck you. Uh, but, so when you get to be uh, so old that you can't take care of yourself, you go into a nursing home in the United States, and you've got to pay for the nursing home because the government's not there to help you. you, you are, you're, you're from America. You've got to save up money, which no one does, to pay your own bills. So people are terrified that they could spend 40 years saving all their money and then go to a really expensive long-term care insurance or in a nursing home, and their 40 years of work is undone in a couple of years, and all of their wealth is flushed on the toilet, and they can't leave anything to their spouse or their kids. Hmm. Neat, huh? Yeah. And so they have insurance for that. And this is one of the things where the in the United States the financial services industry is a lot like religion. 
They scare you. They provide you an answer to your fear, and they take your money. That's very well said. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I've been doing this for a few weeks. Um, <laughs> but it turns out when I did the research that in the United States, 73% of people never go to a nursing home ever before their death. So 73% of people that get long-term care insurance never collect a dime of it. Wow. The next thing is that 54% of people that do go into a nursing home die within the first six months. And the most policies have a six-month deductible, so they don't cover anything in the first six months. Oh, jeez. So now you're looking at about 13% of people ever get a benefit out of this thing. And then the average life expectancy in an American nursing home is 14 months. So odds are they're going to pay seven or eight months, and you've been paying for 10, 15, 20 years for this insurance. And then the real kicker is, is that if you had invested that money instead of paying for the insurance, you would have more in your retirement account or in your investment portfolio than the theoretical maximum benefit that the insurance company might ever cover in the most extreme scenario. And the bonus on top of it is you get to be a burden to onto your children. Which is great. You get to be a, a burden on your children, or if you invested all this money, you have all this money, and if you die, you get to hand it to your kids, and they pay absolutely no tax, because in the United States, we do have this little rule to protect the wealthy people, that if you have millions of dollars and you give millions of dollars to your kids, they inherit it, they inherit it at what's called the step-up basis, and they pay no tax. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Goodness gracious. Um Connie, are you aware of uh, something similar here uh, from uh, inheritance? Uh, they, in the States, they call it the death tax. Well, no, here death it's called tax. if you gift the money. If my parents died and they had $2 million, mm-hmm. they would gift the money to me and I would have to pay no tax on it. Okay. But it has to be stipulated in their will. I would, be have, to, I would have to be stipulated as a benef- uh, their benef- beneficiary or the executor yeah. and it would be gifted to me. Wow. Neat. Yeah. yeah. In the States, it's just automatic. Hmm. Wow. Incredible to see the differences. Yeah. All right. Well, Phil, geez, I don't know where to go with this. Um, you're, you're an expert. Tell me something. Uh, rule of thumbs, is there some, some pitfalls you would tell our audience to avoid at all costs when, it, when somebody's trying to get into investing? Well, the thing that you want to do is you want to have a large diversification of your investments. So don't buy one stock. Buy a whole bunch of stocks. If you don't know how to do that, get a good mutual fund. Uh, A good mutual fund will have a very low expense ratio, and it's usually called an index fund. I don't know. Can you guys buy Vanguard mutual funds in Canada? I think it's part of um, one of the um, funds that we can sell through Investors Group. We do sell. We do have access into American funds. Excellent. So uh, in the United States, the average mutual fund has an expense ratio of about 1.5 to one6 then there's additional expenses that aren't listed as part of the expense ratio. But if you get an index fund, you can get expense ratios of around 0.1%. So you're paying far less. If any one stock implodes and becomes worth nothing, you're not going to notice. But it also takes out the excitement that if one of your stocks doubles, you're also not going to notice. But your goal is not to have fun, although I would disagree. Your goal is to have the most money possible, which to me is really fun. That, that, that's, well, that's my goal. <laughs> um, you know, so in, invest in diversification. Uh, another thing, and this applies to pretty much everything in life, if it sounds too good to be true. It, it is. It, 
Yeah, it, it, it is. And it's, you know, when, when people tell you you can have a low-risk investment that pays 13%, you should go, no fucking way. That, that's not how that works. Um, another thing, and this goes closer to the Ponzi scheme, in the United States, um, you can buy these things. Oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of them now. But if the company gets the primary source of its income from revenue in a pipeline that distributes oil or natural gas then you can buy stock in this company and they pay 8 10% dividend. Okay. And I had my son research this just for fun cuz I try to teach him about, you know, what I do and he says, "Well, dad, here it says that they're they're exempted by federal law. They don't have to follow customary and standard accounting principles." Oh, jeez. Oh, wow. They could fudge the it, numbers. Yeah, so they they get to make they get to follow whatever rules they follow, whatever that means. And I said, "Yeah, that's a problem." And then he read another thing that said the vast majority of the dividends that they pay to current shareholders are as a result of the sales of additional shares to new shareholders. Okay. And that is a Ponzi scheme. Oh, it's wow. legal, so it's not technically a Ponzi scheme, but the only reason they can pay 8% dividend is because they keep selling more shares of their company. So as you get your dividend, your ownership stake keeps shrinking year after year after year. And if interest rates on really safe things starts to go up and people stop buying these stocks, they won't be able to pay 8% dividend. All of a sudden, it's going to be 1% or 2% dividend or no dividend. And then people will want to sell these stocks. And they find out that the only reason they held them is because they thought they might get an 8% dividend and the actual assets of the company are an incredibly small fraction of the theoretical share price of all the stocks combined, and the stock collapses and could lose 50, 70, 80, 90, 95% in days or weeks. Wow. How is Goodness that legal? Gracious. Well, it's legal because there's a law saying that it's legal. Yeah, yeah. It's, they've been lobbied into, into law. Well, you know, Phil, I had this, this $10,000 check here I wanted to send to you to invest in the American market, but I, I'm going to tear that up right now. <laughs> yeah, that, that's best for both of us because I, I can't help you. Yeah, that, no, that's, I know. That's the real bummer. Kind of disappointed. It, I wanted to encourage you and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get a lot of contact from Canada. The second most frequent country that I get in, uh, people contacting me from, I kid you not, is uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates. Really? Huh. I, I'm I'm big in the UAE. I'm like I'm like uh, Spinal Tap in Japan or something. <laughs> but I get I get emails from there, and I say I I can't help you. I'm not licensed there. Now, like I said, if someone comes to me and says I have five million dollars, I might look into it. Although I understand it's still an Islamic state, so maybe I won't. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'd have plenty of customers up here north on the border if you'd ever decide to get a license on this side, Phil. Well, I did contact uh, Canadian regulators, and they told me that. Uh, as long as I had a certain number of clients, I could do business in Canada. All I'd have to do is fill out all the registration paperwork and pay all the registration fees, but I wouldn't be registered. Oh, wow. And I said, well, if, if I fill out all the paperwork and I pay all the fees, how am I not registered? And they're like, I'm not sure. I thought it was clear what I told you. You just wouldn't be registered. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sound, sounds like a plan to me. I mean, why would I not be registered then? I, yeah. I, I don't, they couldn't explain it to me. They also did recommend that I hired an attorney, and so the cost was going to be five to six thousand uh, dollars to get that set up. And, and until I get someone that's got a million dollars, that's just just, just not going to happen. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for all your time. I really appreciate that. But right now, the mic is all yours. Be shameless, my friend. Plug yourself. Go right ahead. 
Where well, can people the, find the show you? is the Phil Ferguson Show, and I'm not sure how practical it is for Canadians, but you probably have some listeners south of the border, as they say. Uh, it's one-third finance, two-thirds atheism. I'm number one in my category. And uh, my business donates 10% of its gross revenue to the growing secular movement, and I encourage other people to do the same thing. And, you know, we're just trying to make the world a better place. So if my show can help you out, uh, the Phil Ferguson Show, check it out. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Phil Ferguson. Of course, there's many of those. Uh, you can also find the Facebook page for the Phil Ferguson Show on uh, Twitter. I am at Skeptic Money. Excellent. So I, guess, I guess that's about it for now. Thank you so much, Phil. And we'll uh, keep listening to your show. And uh, you got friends north of the border. So if you need something from us, you let us know. And, uh, Excellent. Grazie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Phil. Danke schön. Right. Yep. <laughs> Ciao. Until next time. And that was... And that was Phil Ferguson. Great guy. Great show. I really encourage you guys to... Uh, Follow his show, The Phil Ferguson Show. It gives you a really good idea what goes on in the world of money. So, anyway, let's move on. Time for my rant. It's been a while. There's been lots of talk lately of a progressive nature all over the world. Less than a decade ago, people were still chanting, It's the economy, stupid! Yes, it seems the days of caring about nothing but cash and the get-rich-or-die-trying days are coming to a close. In Canada, we dumped the Tories. Europe and Australia are poised to do the same. And the rise of Bernie Sanders south of the border has given much hope to a new generation. People are finally starting to realize that the constant pursuit of riches isn't a good way to live. And as a social species, there is more value in helping each other. Maybe the old African adage of, if you want to go far, go together, will take hold in our collective mind. But even if this new win of enlightenment is refreshing, don't kid yourself. It's not going to be a quick win. The, that's socialism, crowd is still around. You know, the guys and gals that believe Reagan was a great man, that tax breaks for the rich will trickle down, that homeless people just need to get a job? Yep. You know, that crazy uncle you see only in family reunions that listen to conservative radio thinks all the immigrants' fault and he has the solution to all the problems of society. The same people that don't understand socialism, yet are opposed to it, are the only roadblock left to solving poverty. They are, not, they are certainly not going to like these communist Nazi socialist ideas of yours. But you, my friend, are a free thinker. You've done the research. You've seen the data. You've debated the pros and cons, and essentially, it's people like you who actually change the world for the better, while the get-off-my-lawn crowd are desperately trying to slow you down. I'm here to tell you that the world is becoming a better place, and with each new idea, each new freethinker, each new listener, we are getting closer to a goal worthy of humanity, and it isn't getting rich, it's just being better. Well, that takes us to the end of our show. I want to thank Sarah and Connie for being with me and holding up the fort. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate that. Coming up, we have author John D. Webster 
which could be very interesting. He's also a uh, part-time comedian, so that should be fun. Uh, we also have, uh, coming up, we have the Sasquatch Hunter. Thomas the Sasquatch Hunter. That should be really interesting. And we also are doing a show on the LGBT community youth and uh, the pitfalls and what gets in their way. We have a gentleman by the name of Ray Covenant coming on the show for that. So make sure to keep following us. You can follow us on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, you can uh, go to Block Talk Radio. You can go to Spreaker. If you go to some of these sites and you sign up, they will send you an email whenever the show is about to air. Feel free to send us a message, something you like, something you don't like. Send us some mail. We always appreciate the mail. Left at Valley at Outlook.com or left at Valley at Gmail.com. Guys, thank you so much. Until next time. Intelligent people can reach the conclusion that all non-believers are evil. What a fucked up statement. Do you realize what you're saying? But according to your book, this is how your God made me. Skeptical of anything that contradicts history, denies evolution, hates science, promotes mystery. I'd rather see the truth than to bask in my own ignorance. Rather be alone than surrounded by damn idiots. As long as there's a breath in my body, you can bet your last Culture, only true on a regional scale. Science is universal. Or you can say that Horus isn't real, but Jesus is, or Zeus, Thor, Mithra, Vishnu, you don't believe in them. I think the reason is apparent. You do what you're told and believe in the God assigned by your parents. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claim. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Something to be ashamed, I'm an atheist. atheist, atheist.